Addiction is a disease in which an individual only comes to a place of readiness after having consequences that are severe enough to them that they then become willing to surrender, take suggestions, and do the work to reestablish their life and keep the disease in remission. Mm-hmm. People of Creston City, people of every, everywhere around the world, this is David Christopher Pacheco. Hi, my name is Kimmy. My name is Dr. Ortiz. Been in Denver since 1973. Okay, so let's just talk in circles for a little bit. <laughs> let's talk in circles. Yeah. Just shoot the breeze a little yeah. bit. Now they see beyond what I look like. They see what my actions are and say, hey, that is a good person. A lot of people say home is home is where the heart is, but my heart's in many places. It's just I don't know where home is. Welcome back to Homeless But Human. Today we're doing things a little bit differently. It's Shayla here, and we also have our outreach director, Sam. Hey, what's up? And Sam and I are going to be hosting podcasts today. We have a special guest with us, Paul Scudo, who is executive director at Step Denver. And today we were hoping to kind of pick Paul's brain and just have a a conversation about homelessness in Denver, and especially regards to addictions and homelessness. Paul, maybe you would like to share with us a little bit about what Step Denver is. I certainly would. First of all, thank you, Shayla, Sam. Appreciate you having me on today. Step Denver is a men's residential addiction recovery program. We're not clinical in nature, but we give men with nowhere else to turn the opportunity to overcome the consequences of addiction, Mm -hmm. things like homelessness, unemployment, broken family relationships, loss of connection with the spirit, through a program that's based on sobriety, work, accountability, and community. How long has uh, Step Denver been around? This is our 40th year. Oh, wow. We were founded in 19... 40th. Yes. Wow, that's a long time. In 1983. And up until 2015, it was more of a transitional housing program, just getting men in off the street. But right around then, 2015, they started recognizing the fact... They didn't really have an addiction program in place, and thus they were seeing the service they were offering as more of a revolving door. Sure. Folks would come in, they'd get healthy for a week or two, they'd go out, but then they'd continue drinking or using, and they'd find themselves in the same place with the same consequences. So I was recruited to come and build an addiction recovery program at Step Denver. Okay. And so since 2015, we've taken a different approach to the homeless issue, and that is focusing on the addiction first, mm. as well as career and life skill services. Okay. So yeah, really trying to like break the cycle, it seems like, instead Correct. of perpetuating it and maybe fixing it a Band-Aid for a time, but really trying to get to the, the root issues there. Exactly. To give our listeners just a little more context, Paul has been coming to Christ in the City for many years now Mm -hmm. and usually gives a talk at the beginning of the year to the missionaries, getting them a little bit oriented with um, 
addiction and the consequences of addiction and maybe how to approach some of our friends on the street. And uh, we've always appreciated his help. And Step Denver has been recognized in the city of Denver as a, a great recovery program. And we think Paul has a great perspective on a lot of these things. So you weren't always the director there. I took a lot to get there. Would you mind sharing just a little bit of your, your story and history? Sure. It's, it's quite long. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised in a very good upper middle class family, Catholic background, very good values. There was no drinking or using, no abuse, no trauma, no mm. mental health issues. I was afforded all of the opportunity that an individual living in a kind, loving, spiritual family would have. And I am one of the 20% of human beings that God has blessed with the disease of addiction. And I look at it as a blessing because while there are horrific things that come along with that, it gave me the opportunity to really reconnect with God and rebuild my life and thus help other people through that. Mm. So prior to that, right? The disease of addiction is very insidious. It is chronic illness. It never goes away. And the consequences that come along with that are sometimes, as I mentioned, horrific Mm -hmm. in nature. You said one in five, like, is that a genetic thing, a biological thing? It is a genetic predisposition that when we put mind altering substances Mm. into our body, a chemical process begins in our brains Mm -hmm. that eventually over time takes away the prefrontal cortex's ability for logical, rational decision-making. And so despite the consequences, despite what we do to our loved ones, despite the loss of connection with God, we've lost the ability for logical, rational decision-making, right? And so thus we do things that appear to be making bad choices, right? Mm. And so many folks, because they don't understand the nature of addiction, feel that it is a moral issue. It's an ethical issue. It is lack of willpower, lack of strength. I make bad choices. I'm a bad person, right? And ultimately, it's not that. It's, It's a disease. And one can enter into a program of recovery that if done on a daily basis will keep that disease in remission. That program is usually spiritual in nature Mm -hmm. and the community fellowships take on a, a broad spectrum of what that spirituality might look like. Some say you can choose your own conception of God Others are Christian in nature, like celebrate recovery. Mm -hmm. Others are Buddhist in nature, like recovery, Dharma. But all of them, to some degree, explain and expect that you need to turn your will and your life over to a power greater than yourself. Mm -hmm. Because left to my own devices, right, my human failings will, will come to the forefront, and I will not be relieved of the addiction and I will continue to make these bad choices for those folks out there making air quotes, Mm -hmm. which really aren't bad choices. Most people suffering addiction 
are kind-hearted, good people that are spiritual in nature but have lost that connection and their obsession, compulsion, and craving to continue to put those substances in their body supersede any psychological, emotional, or spiritual well-being. Sure, sure. I've heard it said that addiction it's, it's a disease that affects your decision-making ability itself. Mm-hmm. So you are no longer able to make a good decision, which I, I can't even get my mind or I can't even imagine what that would be like. I mean, I, I make bad decisions all the time, but yeah. <laughs> but to, to, for that process to be taken away in some way because of a disease, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's a different, different perspective for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you look at the way God created our brains, it's um, they're almost like computers, right? They're highly functional and very efficient when connected to God and when they're functioning at their top capacity. Yeah. And in essence, what addiction and the substances do is rewrite the programming in that computer so that the focus isn't on healthy spiritual output. Mm-hmm. It is on finding, obtaining, and continuing to use these substances, which are stimulating the baser needs of the body. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very curious because you said, so about 20% of people have this, just, this genetic disposition to, have, to struggle with addiction. But the, the people that we serve out on the streets, the homeless, I would say more than 20% are struggling with some sort of substance abuse. And so I'm just wondering your perspective, how much of a role does addiction play with and with homelessness and, and how does it accompany homelessness? It's a great segue. While 20% of human beings mm-hmm. have a predisposition to addiction, addiction is the primary driver of homelessness. Mm-hmm. So the friends that you're coming in contact with Mm -hmm. on the streets, studies show that upwards of 75 to 80% of them, depending Mm -hmm. on the study, are there because of a substance use disorder, Mm. right? It has become more socially acceptable to say that people use because they're homeless Mm -hmm. and their real problem is mental health, Mm. abuse, trauma, the economy, the cost of housing. Those are things that are acceptable because there is still a stigma that surrounds the disease of addiction in which we look at them as bad people. Mm. They just need to get their act together or if they would just get a job. Right? All of these things because... By and large, while addiction is becoming more accepted as a disease, it's still looked at as a choice. And the average individual, good people, by and large, don't understand it, aren't educated, so they they can't but look at it that way. Mm-hmm. If this person would just, yeah. if you could get a job, reestablish a relationship with your family, go back to church your life would get better. Mm -hmm. And most of our friends on the street didn't just start using drugs and end up on the street. This was a process that took time over years. So to circle back to my story, right, 
I was college educated, very successful in business, had a wife and a home and a wonderful life. And as I continued to drink and use drugs, because the disease is progressive in nature, I used more and more and more. The, those you know, kind of pathways within my brain were being rewritten so that my focus more and more became about using drugs and alcohol and less and less about the responsibilities and the relationships that I had. Mm-hmm. And I began to experience the consequences directly proportional to the increase in my use. I was divorced. I started losing jobs. I started spending all my money and couldn't pay my bills. I was arrested for the possession of drugs and obtained a felony. Mm-hmm. I ultimately lost my home and became homeless for two years, right? Mm-hmm. And this took place over the course of almost 30 years, right? From the first time I started drinking and using yeah. as a teenager in eighth grade, right? And I did that for the same reason that many people do. You're curious, you want to experiment, but more often than not, it's about peer bonding, right? I want to connect with others in my peer group. Mm. I want to feel that I'm a part of, that I'm sharing with, that I'm connected to, right? And for that 20% of us that experiment, we continue on. Yeah. While the 80% realize, okay, that was fun, and maybe that's something I do every once in a while, but it's not the focus of my life. And for those of us that do uh, suffer from the disease, we find a way to continue that, right? Even as it's alongside of being responsible, mm-hmm. up until it supersedes being responsible. Usually when um, people are talking about addiction and recovery, there's you know, the rock bottom that's hit. Mm-hmm. Um, where was that for you? Now that for me was having lived on the street for a couple of years, my experience was a little different in that because I had had this wonderful, robust life and because I had been so successful in so many other things, I looked at this as a moral failing. Mm. And I was embarrassed, humiliated, ashamed, and thus I wanted to hide. So I wasn't walking the streets. I wasn't living in the encampments. I wasn't going to the shelters or detoxes. I was hiding in parks underneath bushes or in alleys behind dumpsters. Um, And I would come out very late at night and I would walk the streets in front of the meters to collect all of the change people had dropped with the one goal of collecting $3.85 so I could get the next day's alcohol and blot out the misery that was now my life. Mm -hmm. After living like that and just being cold and tired and afraid of police contact or getting jumped or attacked, you know, when help was offered to me, I accepted it. So for me, it was a little bit different than your friends that you're going to be reaching out directly to. You would have never seen me. You would have never found me. 
it was only by divine intervention that I got put into treatment. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, that's just such a grace that, that God gave to you. Um, thank you for sharing that. I, uh, we have seen in, I mean, past 10 years in Denver, exponentially homelessness has increased Mm -hmm. and especially addictions. And you can see people out in downtown all the time, you know, Mm -hmm. using who are under the influence. And I just want to know from your perspective, why is this, why is this happening? Why is the growing, this growing problem of, of addictions out on the streets, especially why is it continue to rise? This might, my response may sound uncompassionate, incompassionate, unspiritual in nature. Mm. And I hope that the listeners will hear everything first before making any sort of assessment. Sure. Addiction is a disease in which an individual only comes to a place of readiness after having consequences that are severe enough to them that they then become willing to surrender, take suggestions, and do the work to reestablish their life and keep the disease in remission. Mm -hmm. Formerly in our society, those consequences came much more swiftly because there was a much lower tolerance Mm. of community members for the types of behaviors that are associated with addiction. Whether that be homelessness or crime or uh, vagrancy, shoplifting, whatever it might be, right? Our society has become one, you know, and it's somewhat of a double-edged sword. We're much more caring as human beings about our fellow um, human beings. And at the same time, what that has done has made us much more forgiving of these things that would otherwise provide consequences, Mm -hmm. right? There is a push in our society now to decriminalize certain things, to be accepting of, of things which in the past we would not have been, to be tolerant of things which are actually detrimental to our community, and for us to be more giving, mm. right? We will provide many more goods and services, food, clothing, tents, shelter, medical care, things that allow an individual to continue living. And I don't have to worry about those base needs. I don't have to worry about being arrested. I don't have to worry about the social stigma of community members pointing their finger at me and saying, that's not okay, right? And as we become more tolerant, forgiving, and supportive, the problem doesn't go away. The problem is actually exacerbated. Mm-hmm. We enable that. We provide a, a foundation for which people can continue to live 
or have a much lower threat of death or jail or hunger or, right? And so those folks that would have normally sought help stay on the street. And then we have this new influx of people like me that as their addiction gets to the point where they lose everything and they become homeless, Mm -hmm. join that cohort of people. So we see this increase over time. Concurrently, we see an increase in addiction. And we see that because drugs are more widely available. Mm. Harder drugs are more available to people at a younger age, right? I can go into my grandmother's medicine cabinet while I'm visiting her and take her pain medication. Everybody is being prescribed mental health meds like benzodiazepines, Mm. which are addictive and mind-altering. So I can go to my friend's house that has depression and steal their meds, right? So I have access to drugs in a way we didn't have when I was younger, Sure. right? If you could get pot, that was a big deal, right? And if your older brother or sister or friends had cocaine, that was like a huge thing, but nobody had heroin, nobody had oxycodone, nobody had fentanyl, nobody had meth. Right, these things weren't around, and now they are much more prevalent because the consequences of having them are lower, mm. and it's a much bigger business than it was back then. Drug dealers know I make way more money off selling these. People get physically addicted to them, and so. I, I create a repeat business and the consequences of getting the homelessness are much more rapid than if I'm just drinking and smoking pot. Yeah. So we're seeing this increase in homelessness, increase in addiction, and concurrently an increase in tolerance yeah. and acceptance of that. Right? Yeah. That was a long-winded answer. No, so. that's, no that's great. That's great. I, I'm just really curious what you think is the balance between uh, we go out to to seek those who who do need the help. Uh, what's the balance between just like comforting them almost in their in their spot uh, on on the streets or in their addiction and the, this deep like loneliness, comforting them there versus like inviting them and calling them to something better. We're we're always like looking to to call them higher and, and to, to call someone to, to take that next step. But it always has to come at the right time. Because if, you, if you're just going out there and just, you know, throwing out all these resources, things you can do, like get to know Jesus, like all these things. This is why like we the missionaries learn how to, to navigate these sorts of topics. And I'm sure your, your employees do as well. What's, what's the balance between meeting them where they're at versus calling them to a different place? Great question. What I explain to the missionaries when uh, I've been privileged enough Mm -hmm. for Sam or Phil or Tony to ask me to share my experience is there is no cost and there is no consequence to showing another person you love them unconditionally and show them you, you, that they have value even at their depths, right? What is your name? How is your day? 
How are you doing? Mm-hmm. Right? You just start with that. And you're going to be able to gauge based on your interaction with them. Can I provide that next level of resource? Right? Are you cold? Are you tired? Are you hungry? Are you ready for a change? Right? Then I can share with you resources. Mm-hmm. Right? It costs nothing to give love. And usually the giving of love will motivate a person even more towards, God, I would love to reconnect with humanity. Yeah. I would love to have what I used to have. Right? And if I could just get human connection again, then I realize, oh, there's that next level of spiritual connection. Yeah. I think that's where we find so many of our friends is completely debilitated, just devoid of motivation to, to seek something better. And yeah, they know the resources, but they, they just don't, I don't know. They don't have the motivation to go to them. They mm-hmm. don't see themselves as they don't worthy have or hope. no yeah, hope. There's yep. no hope. But then this, this, you bring this element of friendship and relationship and kind of like a, you're inviting them back into something greater than themselves. Then all of a sudden, this different part of them comes alive and they actually start to question maybe some of their circumstances or, or some of the habits that have developed over time or, or things like that. Yeah. When, when you were talking about community, I just, I kept hearing we are communal by nature. And like, that is something that we all need. We need that sort of connection and relationship. And we, at Christ and City, we talk about a lot that at, at the root of homelessness is this sort of like rupture of that, the rupture of community, rupture of relationship. Um, and which is oftentimes accompanied with, with addictions or whichever comes first. Uh, but it is, I think it's so powerful that we are going out, not just to simply just make someone feel good where they're at and like bring community to them, but to let them know that they are worthy of like a better community. And you you were even saying that like with the mindset of, of addictions and with even the homeless, there is sort of, they have their community of we're, you know, banded together out on the streets yeah, but and it's like transactional. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you. No, Those you're communities good. are transactional, yeah. not unconditional. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so the, I think that's what happens is when, when people that want better for the homeless are reaching out and with an unconditional love, they realize that that is like long lasting, that sort of it catches them off guard sometimes too. Yeah. They're kind of like, wait, what do you want from me? Or, exactly. uh, or what are you trying to sell me? You know? Mm-hmm. And, but it's like, no, oh, no, we're just, we, we want to get to know you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I always recommend to the missionaries, right? Keep the spiritual peace in your pocket. Yeah. Right. God has his own time, his own method. I just have to show up in that moment. And God is going to show me the person that's ready for me to then approach them spiritually. Yep, yep. I am just noticing it's so easy to fall into extremes on the spectrum when it comes to our response to homelessness, right? On the one hand, you know, it's compassion to the extreme, right? Where I... I'm willing to accept somebody wherever they're at, no matter what they're doing or how it affects others. And that, right, that's compassion to the extreme. Or on the other extreme, it's uh, I don't even see these people 
as people, these are just problems and whatever it takes to get them away. Uh, and it's, I don't know. I think holding those two in balance and finding the middle ground is the trick and the key to approaching homelessness from in a way that is effective, that actually helps people, but also uh, in a way that's human and in line with our, our Christian values. And I think Step Denver does a great job of that. It's uh, you're welcome here. We see you welcome brother, but also there are some conditions to being uh, at this place, and and we have a we have a horizon and a vision for you and your recovery. Would you mind just describing just a few of those uh, requirements that you have? Sure, and and just to step back, you articulated that really well. Yeah, I did. <laughs> right, it is very difficult for the average individual to see it other than no strings or go away. So this idea that compassion is really helping an individual to see what their responsibility in the community is. And the very first part of their responsibility is to take care of themselves so that they can be a vital part of the community and give to the community. Right? Addiction is a very selfish disease. It's all about me, what I need, my survival. I don't think in community unless, as we mentioned, it's in that transactional way. So what we try to model is that you have to be responsible for yourself mm. and that these consequences that you talked about are actually compassionate because if you continue to just feed an individual their base needs and allow them to continue to live the way they're living, is that really compassion? Mm. Is that really love? Are you just treating them like an animal? Right? Here's your food. Here's your bed. Here's your blanket. We'll take you to the vet. Right? Here's your Medicaid card. Wow. Right? And we consider that love and compassion. But we know that human being can be so much more in God's world. Mm. And yet we're in the name of compassion perpetuating that. So to come back to your question of what do we do, it almost starts transactional in nature. Because that's where they're at. Are you ready for help? Great. This is what we're going to provide you. Food, clothing, shelter. We're going to help you get a job. We're going to help you open a bank account. We're going to teach you life skills. We're going to help you rebuild your family relationships. Teach you how to budget. Make you put money into savings. Provide you healthy social and recreational activities. And... This is what we expect from you. Hmm. You're going to go to your recovery meetings. You're not going to drink and use. You're going to work a full-time job. You're going to put 20% of your gross income into a savings account. You're going to rebuild your family relationships. You're going to participate in healthy social, family, recreational activities. And you are going to begin working towards independence and self-sufficiency 
so that you can move on and help the next person and you make room for us to be able to take the next person in and help them at the same cost instead of compounding costs over time by just taking care of someone forever, right? And then we say to them, there are two other partners in this, right? The first one is our donors, the people that altruistically give to help you. And you will never know their names. You will never know their faces. They give because they believe in you. They believe in our community. And they believe this is the right thing to do, to give someone an opportunity. And then, oh, there's this silent partner over here. And while we're not faith-based, we, from the very beginning, are explaining to them that there is this component of spirituality that will ultimately be what helps you to succeed, right? And we're going to let you explore that, right? Because we don't want to scare them away to begin with. This is why we find that so many people don't stay in faith-based help organizations for long periods of time because they feel like they're being forced to do these things instead of coming to it in their own time of their own understanding. Mm. And that's when it has so much more value and impact. If God isn't being forced upon me, but I seek God, my relationship with God is so much stronger. And so we're trying to show them the value of that connection by living it ourselves, by being an example of that, right? By doing the things that God would have us do without saying, all right, six o'clock, you've got to go to mass, yeah, right? Yep. No mass, no dinner, <laughs> right? And I wish there was a way that we could, this is going to sound horrible, impose God's will upon people, but that's mm-hmm. not the way God works. <laughs> no, no. Right? It has to be free. God has yeah. given us free will because... If I seek God and want to do the will of God, my connection with God is so much more meaningful. Mm. Right? So we try to find this balance between we're helping you, but you got to help yourself. And oh, by the way, other people and a spirit you don't even know about is helping at the same time as you help yourself. Mm-hmm. Did that answer yeah, your question? Yeah, that's awesome. That's super awesome. I, you're, yeah, you're playing this balance between structure and hey, you you need help and structure in your life, and so here's how this is going to work. But also not doing that to a point that takes away their freedom or their humanity. Yeah. And you're you're trying to inspire. You're trying to inspire them to to seek God on their own to mm-hmm. make the decision. Their decision. I will no longer. Uh, drink and I'm going to become a contributing member of society all those things Um, yeah the third step in the 12-step recovery process that we um, have our men participate in says I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to a power greater than me Mm -hmm. right so right there in the beginning we're telling them this is the only way this is going to work and we want you to make that decision. 
We want you to find out what that power is. Because if you don't come to it of your own volition, you're always going to feel like you were forced and you're going to be resentful. Yeah. And then you're never going to feel God's love. Yep. Right? Because you're blocked from the sunlight of the spirit. Yep. Yeah. I just, I appreciate it a lot because I think oftentimes, even with the missionaries and with our volunteers, our supporters, anyone that's curious about like how to love the homeless well, they want to give them all these good things. Mm-hmm. Like we want to um, view them as our brother and sister and then you know, give them these resources, help them get into housing, help them, you know, in the sobriety programs, but give them all those things right then and there, you know, like in that moment. Whereas with a program like Step Denver, it comes in natural time and like it comes in a, a sort of choice from that person and it comes uh, from responsibility. Like they have to take ownership in it. We're not just giving them something that they can just take. They have to, they, have to they have to earn it. They have to, and give their yes. Like they have to, yeah, engage with it in a sense that's very personal to them. And so I think that's, that's just a very unique aspect because we want, as, as those who love the poor, we want to help them and love them and show them who Christ is. And oftentimes that can just come with like these transactional things, these material things, like mm-hmm. give, give, give. But what, what you're saying and what Step Denver does is it's giving something greater. It's giving that, that responsibility, that agency which I think is a fine-tuned process that uh, a lot of people can learn better. Yeah, do you have any advice for people that are wanting to help but don't necessarily know how to? First of all, thank you. Those are very kind words about what we're, we're trying to do. And I guess I would answer that question with a question that also speaks to something that you said uh, before in your statement. Why? Do people want to give, 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 help, help, help? What are the motivations that we have as human beings in doing that? Mm-hmm. I'm posing that as a question to the two of you. Well, I think I think at a fundamental level, like we are we are communal beings, and so we have a desire when we see someone else suffering, we have a desire to draw near to them and to to help alleviate the suffering, which is a, which is a great desire. Uh, I think a, another reason might be is we're quite uncomfortable with uh, somebody else's situation. It makes me uncomfortable. And so I don't want to be uncomfortable anymore or inconvenienced or, or whatever. And so I'm going to give, but I'm trying to help. I'm trying to help my situation too. So it's kind of a both and, and mm-hmm. I think it, it gets a little gray. I think especially with a lot of our supporters, there feels like a call to answer, sort of a call to to love the poor uh, that comes from from Jesus himself. Uh, other times with people, I think it makes them feel good to help other people. It yep, it's it's a gives me the warm fuzzies to to extend a hand to a person that needs help. And so I think oftentimes with with just wanting to go out and you know, fix everyone's problems. It's, it can be a personal thing too. Like I, this makes me feel good. And like, I'm contributing back to, to society. I mean, and it might be selfish at times too, to, to say like, this makes me feel good. But yeah, I think that is a big driver of why someone might want to give. Um, and then they learn differently. (laughs) And those, those are the three reasons, Yeah. right? I genuinely want to help and care. 
right? There's that spirit within me that wants to connect with the spirit in that person. Secondarily, it is that I feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. seeing someone else that may be miserable for whatever reason. And I want to alleviate that discomfort by helping that person so they're not in that position. And then the third reason is, as horrible as this sounds, Mm -hmm. it's selfish. We are selfish in nature. It's one of the things God wants us to work out over time, right? And we have to learn about. But I want to be looked at as someone that helps. I want to feel like I'm doing God's will and I'm a good person. And I want other people to see me doing God's will or good things or right being someone that is compassionate, loving, help, helpful, because then I feel better about me. Not just alleviating the discomfort, but actually feeding my ego. Hmm. Right. And you're right. Over time, particularly those of you that make this your life's work, right? You move away from the selfish reasons to the spiritual reasons. Hmm. But for the average folks that want to help, they just want to feel better about themselves. So to circle back to the answer to your question, if you want to help, good. Ask yourself why you're helping. Mm. Really pray and meditate on what your motivations are. Are you just trying to be a better person so you can check the box? Are you just trying to get the problem out of sight? out of mind or do you genuinely want to connect with the spirit of that individual and i I think when you get to that final reason you're in a place to really discern what actually helps this Mm -hmm. person yeah what what really makes a difference versus what's just a band-aid exactly uh, on the on the wound i I have to say, I, I see this in social media today, in the, the political sphere, uh, this appeal to because I'm helping or because I am concerned in this area, I'm I'm a good person or uh, it's kind of this virtue signaling. And, and look at me and give me likes, please. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's unfortunate because, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, we're we're trying to work that out in, in our souls and the, the problem seems to be getting worse. The numbers are increasing in Denver and and it doesn't seem like we have a great idea of what actually helps somebody recover from homelessness. It, some people do, but as a, as a whole, we're, we're still, we've got a big question mark. Mm-hmm. As I was, as you were like explaining that kind of third way of why you would want to, to help someone, I just, I was reflecting on what are a lot of the missionaries' reflections And they realize, and this is similar with a lot of our volunteers, and I've said this before too, you know, you come in gung-ho and you're like, I'm going to go out and change the world. And you're like, I'm so excited to get to the streets. I mean, this isn't everyone's experience, but majority. And then you realize how much of an inner poverty you have yourself and how much of a, uh, a reliance on God that you need and that you have. And I think that that third approach comes from a sort of, dependency and trust in God, a dependency on him that because you are poor yourself and this in, this internal poverty that we all have, our brokenness that we all have, because you are that, 
you allow him to come to come into you and to to fulfill wherever you're broken and to to like bring you to the the newer better version of yourself and once you're acting out of that disposition and out of that place when you're extending a hand to to someone you're, you're aware of who you are and you can help them like be aware of who they are and of course with time and we've talked about this like in the right time but when it comes from a place of the Lord has showed up for you you can show up for other people and that but it always comes first with like God showing up first for you and he saved you first so then you can go out and and show him to others and be him to others so yeah, sorry that was just my my thought my tangent I was like I feel like I should share that yeah. <laughs> that's great and you're, and you're actually right in that sometimes it takes that time to get to the most altruistic and spiritual way of helping mm. and I come in all gung-ho and it's like I'm gonna show everybody I'm gonna help I'm gonna do God's right yeah. and then you kind of move to that next phase of you're out there in the mix and you're like this just makes me uncomfortable I've got to double down yeah. to to really make an impact <laughs> right and then you kind of get beaten down because you see the resistance oftentimes that maybe these people aren't ready or don't want help or it's not God's time for them. And then you get to that third deeper level of I'm just showing up because it's the right thing to do. And there might just be one person today Mm. that I can help in whatever way that is. I'm not here for numbers I'm not here for impact. I'm here for my spirit, the Holy Spirit in me, to connect with the Holy Spirit in them. Mm. And if I can just get that with one person, right, that's all that matters. And so to your point, which you said was a tangent, was actually a great articulation of that timeline of, of how I come in with one mindset and I end in a completely different one. Mm-hmm. That is such the situation of so many of our missionaries. Mm-hmm. Right about month four or five, I'm tired. I don't want to go to the streets. It's right. snowing. <laughs> I don't really know if I'm having a huge impact. And they read that Mother Teresa quote, you know, if I look at the masses, I will not act. But if I just look at the one, then I will and mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that motivates them is, oh, my friends out there on the street, maybe I can just, if we can just have maybe a good conversation or if I can just show up, maybe the conversation isn't that great, but yeah. just show up. Maybe that's all the Lord is asking of me today. Right. Yeah. yeah. More importantly, the people we help help other people. The people we help eventually find a spiritual connection and The ripple effect of that, their families, their loved ones, other people they can bring to God. You you can't even put a number on that, right? Yeah. Yeah. You being exhibit A, (laughs) like seriously, thank you for for your witness because it's it's powerful. Thank you. And I'm sure many... It's not not me. Right. It's all God. Right. (laughs) I'm sure many, many men have been affected by by your witness of him. So thank you. Yeah, one of the reasons I respect you, Paul, so much is that I think you play a good balance between mercy and justice, 
on the one hand, you care. You, you're you on the front lines. You're talking to people day in and day out. You're meeting them in, in their suffering, and you're there. And on the other hand, there's a sense of, of calling higher, calling them to a sense of responsibility, instilling agency, and showing people that you know there, there are consequences to, to certain actions. And because I love you, because I care about you, I will uphold you to those things. It's a great way to say it. I respect you should that. Be, right? <laughs> we should be interviewing you. <laughs> He's got great things to say. <laughs> the missionaries are lucky. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thank you for coming on and just sharing your Pleasure. wisdom. Thank you for always having me. I'm humbled yeah. by the opportunity to to help, and thank you. Yeah. For all of our listeners today, if you're interested about checking out Step Denver, you can just go to their website. Paul, what's the website? Stepdenver.org. That's stepdenver.org. Or if you or anyone you know needs help, mm-hmm. you can go to the website for more information. Mm-hmm. Or you can call 303-295-STEP. Amazing. Paul, your witness is powerful. And we thank you for, for joining us today. For, I want to return finally back to the beginning that you, were, you said you were blessed. Blessed to have gone through the, the struggles in your life because they brought you to where you're at now. Mm-hmm. And they brought you to know God. And so we just really thank you for sharing sharing that with our community and those who are listening to podcasts today. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Homeless But Human today. In order to keep producing this content for you all, we invite you to consider joining our known and loved monthly giving community. This is one of the most impactful ways that you can join us on mission. Your monthly gift sends missionaries out to the streets day after day and helps us to continue recording and sharing our podcast. It's our vision that every city not only has soup kitchens and shelters, but communities who are committed to helping the homeless know that they have a home in us. And what is home but a small taste of Christ's infinite love? Visit ChristInTheCity.org and make a monthly gift today to join our known and loved community. And if you enjoyed today's episode, do us a favor and go hit subscribe and leave a review. To get more involved with the mission, visit ChristInTheCity.org.